Ready, set, go! Registration is now open for the Middle States Commission on Higher Education 2023 Annual Conference. It's in Philadelphia, December 4th through 6th, 2023, setting the standard transformation through accreditation. You don't want to miss it. Register now at msche.org. Surprise! We're taking the EdUp Experience podcast to Insights EDU. Join us for an incredible higher education marketing and enrollment management conference February 20th to 22nd in Phoenix, Arizona. Register now at insightsedu.com and use promo code EDUP to save $50 off your registration. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the EdUp Experience podcast where we make education your business. We've been doing that for a little while, uh, over 700 episodes, over 330,000 downloads of our episodes, over 240 college presidents. And we continue on because my co-host, of course, or my co-host, my uh, co-founder of this EdUp Experience podcast, Elvin Freitas, has me booked out every single day to record until the end of time, actually no, until the end of February at this point. So yes, every day I uh, eat a uh, highly uh, consequential salami sandwich and uh, and then stand up and podcast with amazing people uh, like I am today. And in fact, I'm joined by a co-pilot today, uh, somebody who I have a lot of respect for. Uh, this is his, uh, let's see, I think he's been a guest twice, co-host once, and we're bringing him back again, but I need to remind him first before I introduce him. Nobody can do that like me so don't think that you can podcast <laughs> like i can ladies and gentlemen he is mr rob westervelt he's the vice president for strategy and innovation at lindenwood university rob welcome back thanks for having me are you ready for this one man oh man i'm very excited about this one i know you are because you told me that you were very excited about this several times um and what i think people we're don't very realize is you you can't give joe an idea if you're not ready because that's a fact that's a fact yeah so i i hear i read this article that brian wrote in uh, inside higher ed i'm like wow you had me at the title right uh whatever it is i'm against it i'm like okay what is i gotta read this i read i read this article i immediately go to buy the book the book sold out on amazon and i'm so i have to go to harvard to buy the book i think i don't know if it's more expensive or not but i didn't care it, and then got it uh, a few days later. As soon as I got it, I started reading it and loved it. So, and then I, and then I go to Joe and I say, Joe, you you got to get this guy on your podcast. And then literally within, I think an hour, you're like, we're we're ready to go. And I'm like, I got to finish reading this book. <laughs> this is lunacy. <laughs> well, let's anyway. get him in right now because we got a lot to say yeah, we and we've got a lot of questions to ask. He's got a lot of answers. Here he is. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to get all of these accolades in if I can. He's Dr. Rose, Dr. Brian Rosenberg. He's President Emeritus at uh, McAllister College. He's the author of Whatever It Is, I'm Against It, Resistance to Change in Higher Ed, and also a visiting professor at Harvard Graduate School. Whew, I think I got it. Brian, how are you? I am good. Thank you. Well, we're, we're just going to dive right into this book. Um, you, you've done a number, a number of years as a college president, and this book is kind of like a tell-all. Um, that's the way we like it. All the things that you may not be able to say as an employed college president, they can only say after you've done the role, right? It's kind of like that, uh, that recognition. Just tell us what inspired this book from, uh, why did you write it? How did this idea come to you? 
Uh, I think I think there were two things that uh, inspired me to write it. Well, I can tell you when I left uh, McAllister, I had no intention of writing a book. Uh, but the the two things that I've been doing that really led me to to do this were first of all teaching. Now I am teaching higher education uh, to graduate students, uh, and when you teach, it causes you to take a careful look at the subject that you are teaching about. Uh, and so it caused me to take a careful look back at my own career as a faculty member, as a dean, as a president, uh, and think about the things about which I was happy and think about the things that frustrated me. Uh, and then the other experience was spending the last two and a half years or so doing a lot of work outside the United States. Uh, in addition to my other jobs, I'm also senior advisor at uh, the African Leadership University, which is a startup university in Africa. And, uh, you know, many, many college presidents have this fantasy, you know, what would I do if I could start a university from scratch? What would I keep? What would I do differently? And being able to work outside uh, an American context uh, without all of the limitations on change that exists within an American context really gave me a whole different sense of what change might look like and the ways in which change was prevented by the system of which I've been a part for my whole career. So I think it was the combination of teaching and then working outside uh, an American system that really led me to, to write this. Amazing. I'm gonna ask you one more question about your process and then I'm gonna pass it over to Rob, who I know has gotten into the guts of this book and he's got a lot of questions for you. But as a, as a fellow author, um, which I'm not gonna plug my book because yours is what we're talking about here today. Um, each one of us has a different process we go through. What fascinates me about your book in particular is the number of moments and areas of that, that you highlight. How did you structure it? You know, would you go to sleep one night and go, oh, you know what, I'm gonna talk about this and you wake up the next morning and go, oh, that one time, had that not been in place, we could have created change. How, how did you find all of these moments and examples? Uh, it did not come to me overnight in a dream. Uh, once I decided that I wanted to write on this topic, I really, I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, what I believe to be the major structural, cultural impediments to change. And once I came up with a list of five or six, I decided, all right, that's, you know, that's what I want uh, to structure the book around. I also decided that I wanted to build all of my general comments out of personal experiences. Uh, I was really inspired actually by a book that I read um, called Rescuing Socrates by Roosevelt Montas, which is this blend of his own personal experience and his experience as an academic. And I, I read that book, I thought, this is terrific. Uh, and when I, I sat down to write a book, I really wanted to do something that was neither entirely a memoir nor entirely an analysis, but some sort of a blend of both. So that's what I thought about when I when I began to structure it. Love it, Rob. Yeah, well, something that really um, surprised me, pleasantly surprised me about the book, it, when you pick it up, it doesn't seem like it's that big. It's 165 pages, but it's much more dense uh, than I realized. You have 389 citations in there, <laughs> which is a little over two per page. Um, but what's really great about what I appreciate about it um, is it, it gets you uh, exposed to a lot of ideas that you can then follow up on. 
And I was curious to know too, um, did you edit this right up to the point of publication? Because a lot of these um, articles that you're citing are relatively recent. So were yeah. you editing all the way up to publication? Uh, pretty much. You know, in terms of the of the length of the book, I, I've always been a believer in not saying more than you need to say. Uh, okay. You know, in all the years that I was a president and gave speeches, I never had anyone come up to me after a speech and say, I wish that were longer. Uh, okay. and, yeah, right, right. And, you know, to be honest, I think a lot of books are just too long. Uh, and so I wanted to use as many words as I needed to use to make my points and no more. But I did. Yeah, I was um, I was I was torturing probably the editors at, at Harvard Education Press because I kept saying, I want to add. I just read this thing. I really want to add it. I read this <laughs> thing. I really want to add it. And even yes. after the manuscript was finished, it was a little frustrating because it seemed as if every day there was something else that could be added to the book or that was relevant to an argument. So, yeah, I tried to make it as current as I possibly could up to my final opportunity to fiddle with the page proofs. Well, um, it's much appreciated. I mean, I, I felt like it was very uh, up to date. Uh, now, something else that uh, listeners might not know is that you were an English professor as well, or a literature professor, and the writing, your writing is just really good. I mean, it's enjoyable <laughs> to to uh, read. And like, I didn't feel like you were filling up space. Like you said, everything was very purposeful. And I wanted to maybe just jump into it to kind of give people a flavor of the book and then kind of start the conversation uh, around your opening chapter, which is a sort of case for change. But uh, I want to quote this part of the book. It says, within almost any college or university, there are important things that, like Lord Voldemort, simply must not be named. And then you go on and say, one of the ironies of academic culture is that at institutions built around a commitment to critical inquiry and the open exchange of ideas, there are some orthodoxies that, sim that one simply does not question. And you say, my goal here is to question them. We fear change. So, you know, people people like us are just like, okay. Uh, and then you go on to, to say, you know, you were a president and a dean. And uh, you say a president and a dean who does not pay obeisance or differential respect to the model of the scholar teacher, the necessity of majors, or the wonders of shared governance will not be a president or dean for very long. So why <laughs> call out? Lord Voldemort now? Uh, well, I, I'm i a fan of Harry Potter books, not a big fan of um, their author these days, but I am a fan of the books. You know, it's, it is one of the profound ironies of this academic culture uh, that it talks about transformation openly and enthusiastically in every area, but its own in every area, but when it's talking about itself. So the mission statements of virtually every college in include words like transformative and transformational in their own disciplines. Scholars are constantly looking to push the boundaries of knowledge and to change things. But when it comes to uh, the structures and the assumptions and the habits of their own workplace, not only don't things change, but you can't even talk about the possibility of things changing. 
you know, my story, uh, the story with which I begin the book, uh, uh, the story about the relation between scholarship and teaching, what was really striking to me about that moment was not that people pushed back against the evidence or the legitimacy of the argument. They pushed back against the fact that anyone was raising it. Uh, as mm -hmm. if it were some sort of a, of a sin to even raise a question about something that was one of the bedrock assumptions of the university. Uh, and that just that just strikes me as both strange and antithetical to what we're supposed to be about in higher education. And it is true of the scholar-teacher model. It's certainly true of tenure. It's certainly true of shared governance. Uh, and presidents who do push, about, push back against these things or deans um, a, don't have a lot of success, and B, as I say, often don't remain in their jobs very long. So uh, it's, a, it's a peculiar, almost, um, almost oxymoronic quality of higher education. Well, you have this great quote in there where you say, if the maintenance of the status quo is the goal, higher education has managed to create the ideal system. Mm-hmm. And I wrote in the margins like, "Ouch, uh, it, you're 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 really going at it." And you and you talk about the unsustainable model. And I liked mm -hmm. how you put this. You said, "Cut through all the graphs and economic data, and the problem is straightforward enough for even an English professor to understand. When the service you provide costs more than the people are willing and able to pay for it, when you are unable to lower the cost of that service." And when the number of your potential customers is shrinking, you have what one might describe as an unsustainable financial model, period, to be fair. the uh, Oh, I'm sorry. To be fair, the cost of higher education has been called unsustainable for so long that one is reminded of Inigo Montoya's observation, The Princess Bride. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, perhaps. But there are reasons to believe that this time it does mean what we think it means. Surprise! <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, and why, if it's so um, clear, if it's so evident, why are we struggling so much to create transformational change? So first, to, to talk about the, the unsustainable model, when people push back against this argument, uh, I ask them to, to explain to me one number, and that number is 56%. 56% is the current average discount rate at private colleges across the United States. Uh, that is essentially the percentage of the posted price that colleges are not charging in Yikes. order to attract students. Um, so, as I say in the book, the entire industry is more or less the equivalent of Nordstrom Rack. Uh, that is, everything's on sale. Right. Uh, and um, the difference is that the amount that it's on sale in higher education goes up every year. When I started at McAllister, the, that, that average discount rate was down in the low 40s. It's now in the mid to upper 50s, and every year it's been going up, and not, not by one or two tenths of a point but by two or three percentage points. Uh, and sooner or later, if that keeps happening, you're gonna to get to 100% discount rate and giving it away for free, which is of course impossible. Uh, so you have this rising discount rate, you have the inability of colleges to figure out a way 
to deliver a high quality education at a lower cost. And you have this demographic problem, which is only going to get worse for the rest of this decade. Uh, the demographic cliff, as it's been called, uh, tells us that the percent, the number of high school graduates in the U.S. is going to decline by about 15 percent over the rest of this decade. So colleges that are struggling for enrollment now, just imagine what it's going to be like when you when you downsize the pool of available students by 15 percent. And then to add yet one more layer of challenge, in many, many states, a smaller percentage of students are choosing to go to college. In some states, it's under 50% of the students who are graduating from high school uh, who are deciding to go to college. And, and the, the drops have been described as unprecedented. So it, the problem seems transparent. Uh, the ability of, of colleges and universities to ignore uh, or to uh, kick the can of this problem down the road uh, has been really pretty astonishing, you know, and, and I understand it. In the past, higher education has always had something to pull out of its bag of tricks. Every time things looked really bad, something would happen, uh, whether it was the GI Bill or more women going to uh, colleges and universities or the creation of the Pell Grant. Uh, the, the reality is that the bag of tricks may be empty. Uh, there aren't a lot of new things that colleges can do to change that fundamental financial model unless they figure out a way to lower the cost. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I tried when I was a college president uh, and my CFO tried relentlessly to educate the community about these uh, these economic factors. Some Some people understood it and bought into it and some people just didn't want to. It's always hard to accept the fact that the work that you're doing in the industry that you're in is in a precarious situation. And so people tend not to want to accept that. Tell like well, it like this. And this, this kind of raises what you kind of define as a dilemma. And you say, we've created a system in the United States in which we expect colleges and universities, especially those that are private, but increasingly those that are public as well, to come up with their own sources of funding in essence, to act like businesses, even if they are nonprofit businesses, then we blame them for acting like businesses and call them greedy or duplicitous. We speak of higher education as a public good funded as a private good and then blame it for developing strategies for maximizing revenue in an increasingly competitive environment. This so it feels like lunacy. we're kind of getting, you know, we're just getting hit from all sides, but so how, how do you, as a leader, how, how would you recommend a president navigate a situation like this where, you know, you have this need for change, but then you have this dilemma that you uh, describe here? How do you press forward? Yeah, I, I wish I had really easy answers. And I would be the first to acknowledge that the book is much better at diagnosing the problem than at prescribing the cure. Uh, but I think that there are certain things that that if one studies change, uh, presidents and other leaders within higher education simply have to acknowledge. One is that uh, transformational change is not going to come through trying to build consensus. Every every person who writes about change, everyone who studies change, says the same thing, which is that more or less consensus is the enemy of innovation. 
and so this doesn't mean that you don't engage people in the process. It doesn't mean that you don't try to socialize some of these ideas. Uh, but typically what colleges do is look to engage as many people as possible, as many constituencies as possible in the process of developing strategic plans and the process of change. Uh, and what you end up with is the, something that is the least objectionable to the largest number of people. You know, the system that we have in higher education was designed to allow for very slow, very incremental change. In effect, it's a system designed to prevent dramatic change. Uh, and for much of the history of higher education, that has more or less worked in the sense that colleges and universities tend to be institutions that have been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. And in part, it's because they haven't zigged and zagged uh, with every change in the job market or change in politics. Uh, but the, the question that I think everyone has to confront right now is, is that system really suited to this moment? That is, is a system that's designed to allow for very slow change suited to a moment where the industry is under what I would describe as unprecedented financial pressure, unprecedented loss of public confidence, uh, demographic problems, uh, very a much more diverse uh, population and student body. Is that system, which is designed to move things along at a pretty glacial pace, is that system suited to the moment in which we are living right now? You know, I, I love this because I, um, <clears throat> I personally feel like higher ed, it creates this, um, uh, and, and I've written about it before, it's an assimilation culture where if you fashion your, if, if you believe you're a change maker and you try to create change, the structures exist to sap the energy from you almost, right? And if you're trying to do something yourself or you're, you know, there's so many layers that you have to break through that by the time you get the, at some point during that change, you have this moment where you go, is this really worth it? And it's at that moment that you assimilate to the culture of higher education. And because a lot of times you'll go, no, it's just not worth it. I'm going to leave that alone. It's not important right now. But could it help students? Could it make the business move faster? But the just this, it's like breaking through layer after layer. There's just another brick wall there behind you. And you eventually assimilate to these structures around you. How have you found that people who want to create change can stay focused on creating change without getting wins all the time? Because it does sap your innovative spirit. Yeah, well, first of all, you're exactly right. And the story with which I begin the book is, is essentially a story of exactly what you described, of pushing for a particular, at least a particular discussion and deciding after meeting a lot of resistance. And I literally say that we just decided it's not worth it. Uh, too much energy, too little likelihood of success, too many other things to do. And that is a very, very widespread experience within higher education. You know, what I... And this gets to the earlier question about what I'd recommend to leaders. I think what you need to do uh, is to give those people, and they exist on every campus, the people who, who do want to do things differently, who do want to come up with innovative ideas, try to give them some freedom to operate within some limited space without running into those walls. Uh, so, you know, in, in 
change theory, uh, it's sometimes called an ambidextrous organization. That is one part of the organization, the main part, just goes on with business as usual. You don't ask everybody all of a sudden to change, but you have this other part off to the side. It can be very small. It could be an individual, it could be a small team, it could be a small group. And you tell them, run with your idea. Uh, maybe you run an experimental course or an experimental program, or you try teaching something in a different way. You don't try to convince 150 faculty members to do it that way. You just tell five faculty members, okay, uh, give that a shot. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stand in your way. I'm gonna give you some funding to do that. Let's see if it works. You know, there is some evidence uh, based on research done mostly in Europe uh, that ideas that start in uh, what we would call honors colleges, where they do things differently and where people are given a lot of freedom, can then seep back into the main institution and change the way things are done. So, you know, what I would do with those people if I were a leader is just give them as much freedom as possible to pursue their ideas without having to try to convince everyone at a faculty meeting that that's the way we should do things. And only after the ideas have proven to be successful, only after there's evidence that, you know, this might actually work, this might actually be interesting, do you then widen the circle? Uh, I think too often we, we try to start with very large groups. So if you think about the way strategic plans are done, uh, you know, uh, you'll get a call from the institution that goes out to everybody. Alumni, faculty, students, we're developing a new strategic plan. Send us your ideas. To me, that's the inverse of the way you should do it. Uh, that is, you should, you should bring together a group of people who are the most open to change, who are the most creative, and have them work on really innovative ideas. And then you take the best ones and you try gradually to sell those to the rest of the community. So you need to you need to get those impediments out of the way of those people in whatever way that you can uh, so that they don't finally say it's not worth it. Should you register for the Middle States Commission on Higher Education annual conference this December 4th through 6th in Philadelphia? 100%. I agree, because the title of the conference is called Setting the Standard, Transformation Through Accreditation. There is no time like the present to explore opportunities in higher education and the future for our students and our business model. Get out and network with your peers this December 4th through 6th at the Middle States Commission on Higher Education Annual Conference. Attention. Are you ready to elevate your institution's marketing and enrollment strategies? Join the Edup Experience podcast at the Insights EDU conference, February 20th to 22nd in Phoenix, Arizona. Don't miss out on this opportunity to hear from engaging speakers from industry-leading companies like Google, LinkedIn, Adobe, and higher ed leaders. Learn the latest marketing and enrollment strategies to grow your programs. Register now at insightsedu.com and use promo code Add up to save $50 off your registration. Attention. Brian, I, I got to let you know. You complete me. I love it. <laughs> you know, maybe we could talk about some of the imped impediments that you mentioned in your book. Mm -hmm. and, and kind of at the top of your list is ineffective pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And you um, talk a lot about uh, self-directed learning. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could tell listeners a little bit about 
this idea of how the current model just doesn't scale. It just gets more expensive and it and it's affordable to fewer people. And somehow we need to harness this self-directed learning, this sort of active learning that you talk about. Maybe you could share a little bit more some of your thoughts about ineffective pedagogy and what you see as some potential solutions to it. Right. So, you know, as far as the ineffective pedagogy goes, you know, there is evidence based upon years and years of research that people learn better by doing things than by listening to things. That engaged learning, active learning sticks more than sitting in a lecture hall and listening to someone talk to you. This is not to say that some lectures aren't brilliant. They can be works of art. Uh, they can be enjoyable. Uh, but ultimately, the question is not how good is the lecture, but how much of the knowledge that is communicated in a lecture sticks. And there's a lot of evidence that if you're just a passive listener, it doesn't stick as well as if you are doing something. And yet uh, we still consume an enormous amount of time and cost in higher education uh, by simply sitting and delivering information to rooms full of students. Uh, and Technology could do that in different ways and more efficient ways now so that that really valuable face-to-face -face time could be used for much more active, higher levels of learning. Uh, but let's let's grant for a second. Look, I, I was a president of a really good liberal arts college for 17 years. If I could take the McAllister model and recreate it for every student across the world, I'd say, sure. You know, it's it's great. You know, a, a smart faculty member in a room with a small number of students. But the simple reality is that that's a fantasy. Uh, that model is really, really expensive. Uh, and so it is not scalable to the extent that we need higher education now to be scalable at a cost that people can afford. And this was really brought home to me through this work that I'm doing in Africa. Right now in Africa, 9% of the students who graduate from high school go on to a college or university. It's the lowest percentage in the world. And if you wanted to increase that percentage by building American or European style universities, it would be simply impossible. Now, there aren't enough PhDs, it's too costly to build campuses, uh, and the resulting product would be much, much more expensive than even the middle class in Africa, which is small, could afford. Uh, so the question is, how do you take something uh, that is unaffordable and make it into something that is more affordable and accessible? Now, an easy answer is just slap everything online. Um, but the problem with slapping everything online is that most of those purely online universities right now are not very good. The completion rates are awful. Um, if the students are sitting and passively listening to something on a computer, it's even worse than sitting and passively listening to something in a classroom. Uh, and so, and, and now I'm quoting uh, Fred Swanaker, who founded the African Leadership University, you know, if you're in a place like Africa, you don't build a university around scarcity, which is faculty, you build it around abundance, which is students. And you ask yourself, how much can a student accomplish uh, by taking control of their own education? I don't know that we fully know the answer. People have been writing about self-directed learning for centuries. John Dewey was writing about self-directed learning, you know, well over 100 years ago. 
and the reality is that there is some evidence that people can accomplish a lot uh, with the right guidance and direction without necessarily needing someone with a PhD sitting in the front of a room and talking to them. So to me, as I think about potentially reducing the cost of education, figuring out how much students can take control of their own learning uh, with guidance, you don't just leave them on their own uh, and not necessarily be dependent upon a large cadre of traditional faculty members. Ultimately, that's the only way to lower the cost. The, the, right. At every college and university in the country, roughly two thirds of the budget goes to pay for people. Right. And so when people talk about lowering the cost, it's not going to be fixed by printing on two sides of paper or by reducing or by shared insurance co-ops. You have to go to where the, the expenses are. The expenses are people and facilities. And so the only way to change the cost structure, to bend the cost curve, is to look at those two big areas, which means you can't continue to rely on traditional, very, very, very expensive campuses. And you can't continue to rely on very, very low student faculty ratios with people who are very highly trained with, with PhDs, graduate degrees. It's just for the schools that continue to can continue to afford that, you know, Harvard is gonna do that until the end of time because they can afford it. And, you know, good for them, they can do that. But the vast majority of schools are not in that situation. Uh, and so they need to explore other models. And I think to me, uh, the experiential student-centered model is one that is promising and that has not been yet fully explored. Bullseye. <laughs> well, you know, um, I, I have a, a Gen Z uh, son. And as you were talking, I was thinking about how he learns and, you know, you think about YouTube and I think about instructions, like even when uh, we get a new product and we have to put it together, we don't read the instructions. We go to YouTube and we watch somebody do it and we do it with them. And it's and we're just amazed. Wow. Look at what we can do. We just took on this new learning and it was quick. It was it cost us nothing. And he's growing up with that sort of expectation that he can do that. And in college, the way it's structured seems antithetical to that. And another uh, impediment that you bring up, too, is the academic calendar. Uh, he's mm -hmm. used to learning when he wants to, what he needs to. Um, and you kind of go after the academic calendar a bit in your book. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Look, the reality is that the traditional academic calendar has no real basis in learning. Uh, and is extraordinarily inefficient. So this traditional calendar that exists at the vast majority of colleges and universities in the United States, four years to a degree, uh, long summer break, uh, in many cases, another long winter break. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, that's not true in many other parts of the world. Uh, and second of all, there's some evidence that those long breaks actually are impediments to learning. Put simply, students forget stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know all the reasons why that calendar is defended, but if you're looking to reduce the cost and increase the effectiveness of higher education, to me, um, among the most obvious steps to take is to shorten those very, very long breaks. Uh, 
you know, at, at, at ALU, students get uh, their degree in three years. Uh, they essentially do three, the equivalent of three semesters in a year with three weeks in between each one. Uh, and, you know, it, it seems to work perfectly well. And, and we know all the reasons why it is almost impossible to implement in the United States, but really there's, there's, there's no justification for it. And I, my, my wife is a, is a physician. She was a practicing primary care physician for, for over 40 years. And, you know, I would, I would hit mid-May and not have to teach again until September. And she would just shake her head uh, as she was working six or seven days a week when I told her that, you know, I'm really beat at the end of that semester. I need some time to. Are you kidding me? I need some time to recuperate. And, you know, I need some time to work on my, on the book project that I have. Um, it's one of the reasons why people in other professions don't have all that much sympathy for the right. complaints of college professors. And, and then you get the sabbatical too. Yeah. And then you, and then you get the sabbatical. Um, and, uh, and then at a lot of the schools with more resources, teaching loads have dropped. Right. When my son was a student at, uh, at college, the teaching load while he was a student uh, dropped from five courses a year to four. Uh, and uh, the reason given <laughs> was to allow faculty to have more interaction with students, which seemed a little bit counterintuitive to both him and me. Uh, but uh, over time, if you look at these institutions, teaching loads have have dropped. Now, this I, I, I have to emphasize, this is not true at places like community colleges, where um, which I think are undervalued. I think their employees are underpaid. And I think that the work that they're doing uh, is extraordinarily important. You know, something like 8 million students are attending community colleges and, and those people are teachers. They're not expected to be a million different other things. They're expected to be teachers and yet they're the least well compensated instructors in higher education. When we talk about the academic calendar, Brian, I'll be honest, this is the way I feel. You're not the only one cursed with knowledge. Because I, I'll tell you, this is the great irony of higher ed right now. And you go back to your earlier comment about um, higher ed's always had something to kind of fix itself for the time being. Right now, uh, arguably, it's adult students. Now, if you're at a liberal arts university and you serve a, you know, traditional college, what, what is the old traditional college student? You know, we're going to just shift. We're going to shift our mission. We're going to shift. And we're going to go after this 40 million, some college, no degree, adult learner. But we're going to keep everything we do the exact same. We're going to keep our calendar the same. We're going to keep our structures the same. We're going to keep our classes the same. That going after that student demands a massive mindset and physical restructure of the academic. Arguably, the first spot you start is the academic calendar. Because if you want to go to this student that has no interest in you telling them when they have to go to school, and their interest is them telling you when you should be offering them school, that academic calendar is where you start. But, but to your point that the entire infrastructure is built around protecting the calendar that exists, faculty contracts, right? To your point, the way that you pay people is even based within that model. So it's easy to say, you know what, we, we've got the solution. We're going to bring in more adult students. And then in the reality, you try and do that and everything starts breaking around you. Right. Isn't and that the big irony? 
Yeah, so you make a, a really good point. I mean, the one thing that could exist uh, within the bag of tricks is to appeal to that that other audience. What used to be called non-traditional students, but but more and more often uh, are becoming the, the majority of students. But you cannot apply the existing model to that population of students. You can't expect a working parent uh, to come to campus and sit in a classroom four or five days a week or live in a residence hall uh, or adjust their calendar to this very rigid academic calendar. You have to think about everything from the, the, the way you deliver learning and how much of it is in person, how much of it is, is using technology uh, to the academic calendar uh, to how students actually learn. If any group is well-suited to, to self-directed learning and experiential learning, it's that older cohort uh, because they have, they have so much life experience and they've had to spend a lot of their lives teaching themselves things uh, that they should be particularly well-suited uh, to be the stewards of their own learning. And yet, as you say, the, the model that we have now, the contracts, I know the contracts for faculty at McAllister, they were paid over 12 months, but they were nine month contracts. They were they basically the contracts stated that they were not expected to do anything for the college over the summer. Uh, and so you, you have major the impediments to changing this right now uh, between tenured contracts and union contracts, they're 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 pretty difficult to overcome. Rob, we'll give you last question before I give him the final two to close out the episode, because otherwise I will we'll be here the rest of the day because I could keep going on these subjects and I know you can too. Yeah, you know, the last question uh, I want to touch on, and for those who haven't read this book, you should, there's so much we're not touching on, but you mentioned the pandemic and the opportunity that sort of presented itself to create the future university. And you talk about in your book, that uh, the pandemic years are more likely to be viewed by traditional colleges as an interruption than a permanent shift in direction. And you talked about how we were starting to make all this progress and then it was like reverting right back to our habits. Um, share a little bit more about some of your thoughts on that and what sort of recommendations would you make to colleges that still have some of the remnants of some of this futuristic uh, perspective. Yeah, well, I think there are two things driving the return to the old normal. Um, and and I, I am sympathetic to one of them for certain colleges. One is, um, is revenue. Uh, colleges want students in the residence halls. You know, the reality is that when you look at revenue streams for colleges, uh, the one that is in many ways the most efficient is students in residence halls. It's a fixed cost. And if those beds are empty, uh, then you're simply losing money. So colleges, and even you saw this even during the pandemic, how quick some institutions were to bring students back to campus. Look, that was all about revenue. That was all about the fact that we can't afford to lose all that housing revenue. Uh, and so the notion that you would continue a model that allowed students to be off campus more often uh, presented a real revenue problem. Again, not for the Harvards of the world, but for a lot of colleges. But the other reason is just this clinging to tradition, uh, this notion that uh, we can't do these things online because we've always done them in person. Uh, and the kind of community that we wanna build can only be built if students are back in person. Uh, the way that we've always evaluated students is the way that we have to continue to evaluate students. 
So, uh, so it's tradition. It's also revenue. You know what I would, what I would encourage colleges that are that are struggling to do is to think about ways of increasing their reach by taking advantage of some of the things that we learned during the pandemic. Lots and lots of people complain relentlessly about teaching over Zoom, and I get it. But you know, I I did it for. I'm still doing it at Harvard. I, I did it for a couple of years. The first year that I was at Harvard, everything was remote and I taught over Zoom. Uh, now, one of the uh, master's degree cohorts here is an online cohort and I'm teaching them over Zoom. Is it the same as teaching in a classroom? No, but if you work at it and shape what you wanna do uh, to that particular medium, can it be effective? Yes. Uh, so, uh, so more schools should be looking at ways of reaching new audiences, those, those adult audiences, those non-traditional audiences we talked about. Uh, and a lot of pedagogical innovations like placing less emphasis on high stress examinations uh, and giving students more opportunity to, to go back and revisit their own work and improve it that seem to be adopted during the pandemic are now just falling away. And I would encourage people to, to go back and look at the things that were pedagogically effective and not be so quick to jettison them. Uh, so um, I feel, you know, we, we did learn some things. We learned that Zoom exists and we learned that it can be used, but, um, but I don't think that we learned or that we're, we're holding on to all the lessons we could have held on to from, from, the, the worst years of the pandemic. Brian, I want to give you an opportunity just for an open mic moment. Tell us uh, where to get the book, um, you know, <laughs> where, where we should go I, and you should buy it. I'll tell you that. Anything else you want to say about your tenure as president or your Harvard work, anything at all, open mic. Um, well, you can get the book at um, Amazon, at Barnes and Noble, uh, at, uh, there's an online site called Bookshop where you can order it through your local independent bookstore, um, or you could get it directly from Harvard Education Press. Right now, unfortunately, at a lot of those outlets, the physical copy is sold out. You could always get the ebook that could be downloaded. If you want a physical copy right now, the best place to go is to the Harvard Education Press website. As far as my, my time at McAllister, it was the greatest privilege of my of my professional life. Uh, it was hard. Um, I don't regret it uh, for a second. Um, I, I learned a lot about what works in higher education. And I think I learned a little bit about what could work more effectively. So um, it was a it was a great opportunity. You know, I've had the privilege in my career of being a faculty member, a dean and a president. And so I think I can I can see the enterprise from a number of different angles at this point in my life. Um, before I ask you my final, final question, I want to say that uh, your book right now, as we're recording this, is a number one bestseller in education policy on Amazon and uh, number one new release on paperback for education reform and policy. So congratulations on uh, on those accomplishments. That's, in, that's incredible. Thank you. And uh, finally, what do you see, my friend, for the future of higher education, given all that you know? Uh, look, it's not going to go away. Uh, it's a lot like... I, I just finished 10 years on a healthcare board, nonprofit healthcare board, and it's another industry in crisis. But whether it's education or healthcare, these healthcare, these are absolutely essential social services. 
And unfortunately, in this country, as you know, we have a tendency to wait until things are on the on the verge of collapsing completely until we fix them. Uh, and that's what's happening now with our infrastructure. I think we will fix this, uh, but I think it's going to have to take probably more colleges closing. I really do think that right now the market is imbalanced. There's more supply than demand. And so that's probably going to have to right size itself. Uh, but I, I have to hold on to some optimism that sooner or later we're going to realize we have to figure out a way to do this at a lower cost uh, and um, and to reach populations that we're not currently reaching. So I hold on to the optimism. Some of the disruption will come from without. I hope some of it comes from within. Well, I found this to be an incredible episode. Rob, what do you think about this? Oh, it's great. I hope we can have you back again and dive deeper into some other parts of the book. You have a whole chapter on the path to change and six assumptions that we could go through. Uh, that would be super valuable to listeners. And we should. I guess I guess this is a return invitation in real time, uh, Dr. Rosenberg. <laughs> we, we're going to have you back to go through that chapter with Rob and myself. Um, ladies and gentlemen, my guest, uh, co-host and co-pilot on this episode... He's the only, he's the only and one and only Rob Westervelt. He's the VP of Innovation and Strategy at Lindenwood University. And my guest today, uh, I'm going to not, I won't put the book in the, in the outro. I'll just tell you guys, it's called Whatever It Is, I'm Against It. We forgot to even ask you why you, you called it that, but I can infer uh, why you titled it that. Resistance to Change in Higher Ed. Go pick it up now. You will not be disappointed when you do pick it up. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today, your guest today, He's Dr. Brian Rosenberg. He's President Emeritus at McAllister College, visiting professor at Harvard Grad School and author. Brian, thanks for being on the podcast today. My I hope pleasure. you had a good time, fun. at least. I had a great time. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed upped. Oh, yeah. The Middle States Commission on Higher Education 2023 annual conference is in Philadelphia, December 4th through 6th. Setting the standard, transformation through accreditation. Remember, only you can create transformation through networking, knowledge sharing, opportunity, leadership, service, learning, and accreditation. And you'll do all those things at the Middle States Commission on Higher Education Annual Conference this December, 4th through 6th. Can't wait to be there. EdUp will be there. There's going to be over 1,300 attendees, presidents, provosts. The networking opportunities are off the chain. Register now at msche.org. Oh, yeah. Attention, higher ed marketing and enrollment management professionals. We are taking the EdUp Experience podcast to Insights EDU. Join us at Insights EDU on February 20th to 22nd, 2024 in Phoenix, Arizona. Gain insight into the latest higher education trends and cutting-edge marketing strategies that will take your institution's enrollment to a whole new level. This is your opportunity to connect with higher education leaders and marketing experts from across the country. Comprehensive presentations, engaging panel discussions, and more. Insights EDU will equip you to position your institution for growth. Register now at insightsedu.com and use the code EDUP to save $50 off your registration. Can you afford to miss this conference? I don't think so.